You're listening to the Saul Good Media Podcast. I looked up and there was no longer a central me. There was no reference to a me, to a Rob Ryder. There was the isness, which is a made up word, I don't know what to call it. But there was just living occurring without separation. And it was very interesting at that moment because there was no longer a here and an over there. There just was everything everywhere. Welcome to the Saul Good Media Podcast. Since 1970, Rob Ryder has actively engaged in many holistic health modalities as a student, teacher, guide, and practitioner. He now coaches, inspires, and mentors others to awaken from dogma and programming to an unlimited possibility of living. The essence of these ideas is expressed in his book, Life is Not What You Think, Permission to Go Out of Your Mind. I've personally read the book and it has really transformed the way that I think about things. I was lucky enough to spend some time with Rob and do a coaching session with him and I can speak from experience that I have truly felt the transformation. That is why I am so excited to introduce Rob, who has graciously offered his time to share his story and dive into some of the lessons that he uncovers in his book. In this episode, Rob takes us on his journey through life and talks about the various teachers and mentors that he's worked with along the way. If you want to learn more about Rob at any point throughout this episode, check out his website at www.coachpresence.com. That's C-O-A-C-H-P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E.com. I'll also have the link in the show notes for those of you that are interested. In this episode, we barely scratched the surface of the vast amount of knowledge that Rob has to offer, so I would highly recommend checking out his book because it's a great precursor to the coaching sessions. His approach is incredibly eye-opening, and within a few hours, I was experiencing life from an entirely new perspective. It's good stuff, but don't take my word for it. Get the book and try it for yourself. Rob, in your book, you talk about an experience that transformed your life. Could you share with us that moment on the mountaintop? Could you give us some background of your life leading up to that moment? Sure. Th- thanks for that. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I make no promises on any of the sessions, but language that I use and the experiences that I use through different kinds of uh, exercises and insights are designed to bring someone into their own world and their own mind and essentially weed out what isn't working for them. And the issue is that some of them are subconscious, you don't know they're there, or transparent or even unconscious, but they, they're there. And so it's an interesting journey. My journey is not unlike anybody else's, grew up in all that, growing up in this uh, society. But I, I always fundamentally question things, and it started from a very early age of questioning things. So of course, it got me in a lot of trouble too, you know? <laughs> so while I got good grades, you know, they also demoted you on work and social habits. And so it was very confusing for the teachers, as well as it was for me, because as I came in and was born into uh, this life, my my grandparents were from Europe, and they had, uh, our family suffered great losses in the war. And I, it never made sense to me, how could people be so cruel to each other? I I just couldn't fathom that as, as a child. So um, I began questioning all sorts of things, and um, you know, I adopted many beliefs and many fears that come along with some of the beliefs that I adopted. 
And then there were good beliefs too that, you know, like this, you know, I, I, I interpret it as good. I don't really like to do good, bad, right or wrong. But I remember seeing like, for instance, as a child, Mighty Mouse, Superman, and I thought those in, in comic book heroes along the way, I thought they were a good thing. They were helping people. So that was something to aspire to. And then this workout guy was on TV called Jack LaLanne. And, uh, <clears throat> and he had a great message. And I was very impressionable at the time. So I began working out at a very young age. I thought that was smart. And that allowed a certain amount of discipline. Um, it helped me integrate a lot of the experiences of my mind because the body, mind, spirit, mental, emotional, all those things are all rolled into one. There isn't a separation. Sometimes I find that in modern days now, or I don't know if that's the right word, but people separate out and think they have to act like a spiritual person or a mental person or a good person. And those are all, and I'm not saying that, you know, in the realm of life, you can become all sorts of things. But true happiness doesn't lie in just a behavioral change. And a lot of those people-pleasing behaviors or pretend behaviors or pretentious don't ultimately bring joy. They don't connect people. They often separate people. So we each have our own journey of how that goes for us. And for me, it's just a, a unique journey along the way. I always had a lot of energy, and it streamed through my body in, in a very uh, blissful way, and I wasn't um, aware of what that was. I thought everybody had that ability. I also noticed things energetically, which are, you know, I'm not a woo-woo guy. I'm really a science guy, and as you find out more, you'll see that that's true. So I would always put it to the test, but I would be able to see things that um, I thought everybody could see, and it was an interesting thing, just playing games with it, because it was, to me, just the playground of living, just like any other playground. So very early on, I would go into questioning things about life, and then I was forced to, because uh, I grew up in the era of the Vietnam War, being pressed upon me and having to make some kind of early choices around that. And the reason I say that is because it bumped up against the authority, including my parents, and it also made me have to make a decision as to whether I would stand up and kill someone when I didn't feel I had any personal stake in it. And um, and I'm not opposed to defending and protecting, but it didn't make sense to me. And I'm, I'm a systematic, logical guy also. So that didn't help me. It just made me challenge my world and uh, caused further separation and pain. And because of the time I grew up, I I was split between being a good boy and going, well, that's not, that doesn't make sense as being a good person for the world itself. So that was the beginning. And then as I got exposed, my uh, first book that really, really made me challenge myself was my first living teacher, and it was Krishnamurti. And the book I read was called Freedom from the Known. And I didn't understand it, but it it made me question now everything, every belief that came through my mind. But I didn't have the insight. I didn't have the whereabouts to understand fully at that time what he was implying. But it was enough for me to go, okay, I'm not the only one that questions these ideas that are in my mind. And how did they get there, by the way? And why do I believe them? 
So it was a really interesting time for me and very unique time. I also explored what, what will open the doors of perception and how do we perceive things. So through a period of time, I would look at the world and see, well, is that the way it is or is that the way I see it? And so it was very interesting for me to, to begin to see different perspectives. And I wasn't doing good, bad, right, or wrong as much as just exploring it as an option in living. So I found that very to be very interesting, um, muddled with who am I and what am I going to be when I grow up? And, you know, I, I, I'm afraid to say even at this age, I'm still figuring that part out. Uh, and we'll get to that in some point here. So early on, I read that book. I, I was, you know, flabbergasted that I automatically accepted ideas in my mind and thought they were mine or they were my ideas or that I had to adopt ideas in order to have a better life or live better. It was very confusing at that time. Also, at the time, I was exposed to a first Chinese master, grandmaster of Tai Chi. And it was just part of a college experience, but it was a the starting point of a, a deviation out of calisthenics into this other kind of using my body, which uh, is premises on the chi of the body, which is the energetics of the body. So just to, to describe that a little bit more, we, we're an electrical current. Run, we have electrical currents that run through our body. We have a nervous system. And, you know, if you want to learn more about that, just look it up in Wikipedia and it can tell you all that. But for me, it was a visceral experience of vibrational energy that was running through my body. It just made me more aware of it because the nature of the exercises um, stimulate the nervous system and you begin to feel that thing. It also was a different way to become very grounded. And uh, heretofore before that, I wasn't very grounded and flitting about doing all the things that I did. So it was a very interesting expression of the body, which led to many, many years later on studying with different uh, grandmasters from China. So it, it was the start of, well, life's different than I think it is, and I need to explore it even more. So my college degree, I, I couldn't do the work that I was degreed in anymore because it, it, it uh, I was a social worker degree. And I, I started in some form of social work and was asked to evaluate someone within the context of their evaluation sheet. And I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't give them a letter. I, I couldn't translate it. It's really interesting. I mean, and the whole staff is like, Rob, just, just do that, right? I'm like, you know what, this is probably not a good fit. So, you know, I, I did what many people did. I resigned and bought a van and drove out to California uh, and because I was from Michigan and began to have my eyes opened up pretty wide. I had already just come back from Europe and seeing another culture was, was another insight for me. We all don't think alike. And the way it was jammed down my throat is right, wrong, good, and bad as this society is, and I'm not criticizing it, just saying that's what it was. I was over in another culture, many cultures because of the, the uh, countries are you can get to a lot of places that way in Europe because it's not that big, and found out, well, they think differently. It wasn't wrong. It was just different. It was like, wow. So even eating patterns, I'm like, okay, so we're going to eat the main course first and then have salad afterwards. <laughs> okay. You know, it's just some of the more fundamental things. But it, for, for me, one that observed life a lot, it helped me explore other perspectives. And I think that in our life, the more perspectives we have, the more we can meet the challenges that come because daily living, no matter where you are on the scale of 
engagement in life, you are challenged. Physical challenges, mental challenges, emotional challenges, societal challenges, monetary, and all that. And if you only have one modem, mode of operation, you, you may not be able to solve that problem with the greatest ease or the least amount of ruffle, you know, whatever the right words are. So it was very interesting very early on, and then I began further endeavors into the Chinese movement arts, and simultaneously just my um, interest, I learned magic, juggling, balloon animals for fun, so that when I was traveling, it was kind of a lazy person's way to connect because I'm not very good with language. So I was able to connect culturally to people by humor and by you know, razzle-dazzle, you know, and offer something in terms of a gift. And it was always a heartwarming event, and there was always a connection there. So that led me into the different studies that were happening along the way, and then I began to study a hard form of kung fu. And so that was interesting to me. It was just a whole nother way. Now it wasn't this soft-flowing Tai Chi experience, and where we're feeling the flow of this energy, it now has an end result like fighting. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. That's part of that Superman thing. I could transform myself and, and learn that also. So still questioning who I am and what to be. And as those skill sets started becoming more concrete, I also had the ability to create illusionary uh, effects through the art of mime. Now, what's interesting about that is that being a mime, which I I've done professionally for 40 years, solved one of my problems. When I couldn't figure out what to be, as a mime, I realized I could become everything. <laughs> and so it was like almost a heaven-sent career because it took not only my razzle-dazzle skills and my physical ability, but it also allowed me to experience every aspect of living because I could become, through the illusion, uh, all things in consciousness. Now, what's so interesting about that, in just a, my opinion, is that in the Vedic knowledge and the Indian knowledge of um, the world, it talks about the feel of life, not just the words, and we'll get to that perhaps in a little bit, not descriptors, not labelers, but what, what is the feel of the experience of what I'm looking at? And, you know, we project some of those feelings onto, but if I was to let some of that projection go, I could sense the strength of a branch or the heaviness of a rock or, or something like that and become those things or the emotions. And so little scenarios and performance began and writing different kinds of skits along the way helped me become more fluid with my living experience of life and more observant. And so ultimately it was a interesting career, so to speak, uh, that, that helped meld the things that I was already uh, accomplished in, in terms of physical and then my natural desire to connect with all things because it was my life at the time. Uh, it made sense to me. It was in about the early 80s that I started to explore then how can I emanate the energy that I've created through qi, because these qi exercises like tai chi not only make you aware of uh, the energy of your body, but you you begin to be able to actually move that out. And there's many uh, scientific proofs of that. So we want to just explore that idea is that you have the ability to build energy and discharge energy. 
and that's an energetic field of energy. And so that became like another thing to explore as a playful thing in, in my life. Now, the difference between calisthenic kind of or physical lifting of weights, and, and I like everything, and I, I'm not saying I don't do it. I do all kinds of workouts, but some deplete energy and some bank energy. And the chi exercises seem to give you energy, and uh, it's certainly a nice addition, just like stretching is a nice complement to uh, some other kind of physical work. So I began to explore that energetically, and um, I was exposed to this energy as a healing energy. I didn't know of it as a healing energy. And then you'll see as years have now passed, it's very commonplace that people use energetics, uh, qigong and uh, things like that in Chinese traditional medicine. And I went, oh, that's so great. I, I'd love to learn more about that. So I began to explore that realm. But there wasn't a um, solidification of it. It was still just an exploration in my mind. And I, I never identified with being a healer. It's not something I consider. If healing happens, that's great. But lots of things can cause healing. A smile, a gentle smile from somebody, an opening of a door, just some kindness is also its own brand of healing. Just a flower existing and observing it or the nature of animals that are in unconditional love also is a, is a healing. So I, I don't consider being a healer or, or as who I am at any time along the way, no matter what the energy is doing or how much it helps someone. I don't, I don't wear that label. So all that is occurring, and I'm beginning to have more and more insight into the nature of consciousness. And uh, some years past, I studied with uh, Kushi at the Kushi Institute of Macrobiotics and the mid-late 80s, and I began to understand the interface of not only what would something feel like, but what happens to us when we take on different attributes of eating. What does food do to us? What does the sunshine do to us? What does somebody, when they speak to us, do to us? And I became very sensitive to, oh, it's all happening. There's not this separation. This is called livingness, and as you begin to observe that livingness, in this kind of way, you begin to learn more about why disease happens and, and why happy happens and joyful happens. And I'm not prioritizing what anybody should be or could be. I'm just saying when you begin to understand the nature and, and in the old, in the, in the Chinese way or the Japanese system, it would be called yin and yang. And the yin energy is, is uh, very different than yang energy. And everything has its effects. So there's some people that are so adept at it, they can eat one thing that can cause a reaction in them and then eat something else and it calms that reaction down. I'm like, wow, how does that happen? But that's the, that's the nature of consciousness itself. It's either expanding energy or contracting energy. And so as I began exposed to that, it was just another piece along the way that I went, okay, wow, everything affects everything. That's interesting. But nothing affects me greater than my own thoughts. That's one thing I noticed. If I felt down, I really felt down. If I felt up, I really felt up. But it was usually based on a belief. I went, oh my goodness. So now I have to like look at the nature of beliefs. Because as, that, as I got exposed to these different modalities and was working with lots of people with a lot of different health challenges, I began to realize that I needed a tool belt because no one way was good for all people at all times. So I began to 
expose myself to um, other modalities so that I could be more helpful for someone and just see, well, maybe if they ate a grain of rice, that would be good for them. Or if maybe if they just took a walk in nature, or maybe if they got energetic healing, call it what you will, the Reiki or, or anything that's out there without a label, just energetic kind of things. Or do they need food? Because I found so many people with inflammatory conditions, which I believe is mostly based on malnutrition, based on the food cycle that we have here, the, uh, you know, the land can be depleted. So, you know, again, our poisons, are we toxifying our body or purifying the body as best we can with what's available? And most people suffer from some form of malnutrition because we can't get all the all the vitamins out of, out of the food source. So, you know, there was so much rolled into it. And then um, I began... Um, I was at, I was influenced by someone to see uh, Swami Chidvalasananda, which her common name is called Guru Mai, of the Siddha Yoga lineage. And Nityananda, Muktananda, and the Guru Mai had this ability, and it was a most uncanny ability. So I traveled under great suspicion to New York, to uh, what they call an ashram, or just their center here, and uh, walked in and was checking in and looked up at a picture and I felt energy run through me and I thought, oh, well, that's so interesting, but I didn't think anything of it. But when I went to go to sleep at night, I uh, they had a, a policy lights out, at, I don't remember if it was 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, and I closed my eyes and I said, oh, could someone just turn the lights off? And I would open my eyes and the room would be dark. I would close my eyes and it would be illuminated in my, my like someone was shining a flashlight on me. I'm like, well, that's interesting. And so I began to learn more about this energetic experience called Shaktipat. And uh, what is that? And apparently, uh, you know, at the time I was very ignorant of it, um, these teachers, uh, gurus, whatever you want to call them, that just means teacher anyway, um, have these abilities. And they, their ability is to help you come into your own realization of self. And they're very gentle energy can be felt and it does something obviously in your physiology and the next morning was my first time to see this person and so i got all ready and went out and uh, i went to the preliminary meeting in which they said these are things you can expect and they looked at me and they went um rob and i'm like yeah you might want to fix your pants you, they're inside out I'm like, oh my God, that's never happened in my life. So I don't know, you know, it was dark and whatever, but I just thought, oh my God, I am losing it here or I'm getting something. I don't know what's going on. So I went on to the first morning and uh, experienced uh, that exchange with this teacher along with her, a couple hundred other people in the room. And I began my body, I got hot. And it was the first thing I noticed, I'm like, why am I so hot? I'm like, wow, I'm really hot. So took my suit off, my sport jacket off, or my suit top off, and uh, I just felt so much going on. I went, well, this is so interesting. I mean, how's this happening? And then later on, I would have this time in which this ability to pass this energy was a formal thing where you would go be with that, uh, with Swami uh, Chidvalasananda or Guru Mai, and she would um, touch you with a peacock feather. It was just very thing, but you're just in her presence. 
and I could feel all sorts of things going on. I don't like to use the word high, but I would say expanded consciousness. And it seemed like forever I was there. And she bought me many times. And I actually walked away from it really fast because I was pretty expanded. I just thought, oh, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go out of here. And then she had one of her assistants come get me as I was walking and bring me right back up to her. And she goes, um, how are you? I'm really good. I went, where's my voice, right? It's so interesting to me, you know. She says, what's your name? And I just looked at her. <laughs> it's so funny, though. I looked down at my name tag, well, and she laughs. I go, Rob. <laughs> And uh, she says, what do you do? And for some reason, I could remember that. I go, I entertain, and I like to entertain and do children's show. And, and she said, would you like to do that here? I said, I'd love to do it here. So that was great. So I had ended up doing a show. I left there and went to a room for meditation just to sit with myself to feel what that feels like. And I was very selfish in that moment. And I said, well, and it was a place where Ed Baba, her, her predecessor, had spent many years in that room. And I, I said, you know, I can take more if you got it. And that was the last thing I remember. And, and a few minutes later, I either came out of a sleep or whatever, but I definitely was not conscious for a few moments there. And when I walked out, life was very different. And I, I saw molecular structure recreating itself as life. And some people have words for that. I, I have no words other than for the experience. Some people call that cosmic consciousness or what have you. I have no idea what it was. All I know was it was pretty cool. And life was never the same from that moment on. I, Even though I was actively working with clients, I, I really went into silence. I talked very minimally. There was nothing on my surface mind that needed any solving whatsoever. And I was pretty pretty happy camper, if you want to call it blissed out, you could call it that, yet very grounded in, in doing what I was doing. And it was my first exposure to this idea that we have lying within us, dormant within us, what's called kundalini. And through the gentleness and love of this being, they're able to activate that, which we all have this birthright to, and really experience a fullness of our life beyond the limitations of thought and beyond the limitations of belief to experience this interface that we have called living in a more fuller way. And at that moment, my life was changed for that, for that and forevermore. And so many years I spent with different um, masters of, of the East. I had already uh, backtracked, and that was probably 92 or so. Uh, in 1983, I met my, my uh, Tai Chi, Kung Fu, and uh, Qi Kung master, Master Lee, and grateful. I studied hard and uh, also taught for him at some point there after some years. And to this day, still do those exercises. And I'm very grateful for his uh, humbleness and amazing abilities. And I'll tell you a little story about that in just a minute. But that was also clearing the channels because I was, I was doing this chi and these workouts actively every day for hours and hours. I believe when I moved back here, I was working out 10 to 12 hours a day. I was very physically active and, and, and demonstrated in a lot of different ways because I could. And it was part of staying in shape as being a mime artist, but it had its own life to it also. And that was the beginning of really opening up this energy. So when I met these 
Indian masters later on, my body must have been pretty prepared for energy because everybody around me did not have the same exact experience, not that they needed to or have to, but mine was definitely a, a defined, expanded consciousness, which really um, showed me that there's much more to us in our capacity with life than just surface ideas of the mind. And so that was a beginning time, and over time I had seen um, some other masters along the way, and um, I found my way to Amrit Desai, uh, who uh, created Kripalu Institute for and many integral studies there, um, yoga and some other things. But one of the things that he had shared with me that I was interested in is this thing, this thing called Yoga Nidra, which is called Aware Sleep. And it's just a process of guided meditation. But what's so interesting about it is that it drops you from beta, which is where we're at in this talking, engaging day to day, to alpha theta. <clears throat> and alpha theta, excuse me, alpha theta is dropping into a deep, restful state, which you hope to get to in your night's rest. But for the most part, we don't get to that restful state of alpha theta. And that's where we really rejuvenate the body. And it's a beautiful experience to get deeply rested. And this yoga nidra, these swamis from India and certain sects of branches of yoga realized that they could drop themselves into a very deep, restful state and meet the challenges of life in a, with a brilliant mind, an awake mind, because it wasn't fatigued. So, so much of us, so many of us don't get the kind, we go to sleep at night, but it doesn't mean we get the rest we need. So many people I encounter are very tired, and it's understandable, they're not getting the rest. And so it may take up to about five hours of normal sleep to where you can get maybe five minutes of alpha theta. But if you're waking up tired, which many do, not all, but you'll probably find that you haven't hit that alpha theta state. So this was a way to artificially allow yourself to go into alpha theta. I thought that was the best thing ever. And what happens in alpha theta in this restful state is you aren't so tied into your, you, you're not aware of your body anymore because you're sleeping, but you're also not aware of, you know, your mind, you're not aware of your surroundings. And so it's this quiet space. And I heretofore prior to that I had done meditation, but it required me to sit up and then, you know, either a mantra or some idea, give my mind something to do, which is what Yoga Nidra does. But I had to do it versus listening to it on a um, CD. And so I went to study with Amr Desai, and lo and behold, he's a Shaktipad guy too, and uh, uh, which we really respected each other. And he noticed that I was very affected by the Shakti. I eventually worked with him every day, and I worked on him, so to speak. And then the payoff was I got to be with this Shaktipad guy, and, and it really affected me in a very beautiful way. I had gotten many of his CDs before I made my own, and um, I found that's what led to that experience that you were alluding to before. I did multiple ones. Every, every hour I would do another one because I really realized that you can really rest your body, and then guess what? You can rest it more. Now, can we give ourselves enough permission to rest because of the demands? Just think about all those hours we grew up at school. And now they're finding you know, the circadian rhythms. It's not so great for a young kid to get up so early in the morning and and I'm not saying it's good, bad, right, or wrong. I'm just saying it's challenging because they aren't getting the rest they need. And every day they're going into a new hour with new new kinds of um, 
stress is put on them, let alone um, you know the stresses of modern day, which means you have to look out for that for a, a, somebody showing up at your school with a rifle. That's stressful, and everybody knows about it, and the kids know about it, even if they don't talk about it. So to me, um, you know, school can be very stressful. And they have found in many studies that the yoga nidra is not only a tool for rest, but it allows your mind to uh, um, learn things at a quicker pace because you're not fighting yourself so much. So in this particular in instance, it was uh, 2003, December of 2003, I was in a very um, stressful state because I was considering a separation in my marriage and my family. And even though I loved everybody, I didn't feel this um, like it was right for me at that moment. So I decided I better get some rest before I make any kind of decisions on a, on a tired mind. So I did multiple yoga nidras. And in the last one I did, uh, it just happened that a vast amount of energy shot up my spine, up through into my brain. And I'm like, okay, what was that? And I didn't know, but I just felt different. So uh, as the book describes, I, I said to my sister, um, I'm going to have to go for a walk. And she said, well, we're going to take a hike. I go, you know, I think I should be alone. And she goes, okay. So I started this journey up a mountain. And about a third of the way up, I just found myself doing yoga. And it was pretty spontaneous. I'm not a great yoga guy. I'm not, you know, it's not my thing i'm certified as a teacher but still it's not it's not my go-to thing um, but i noticed that when i looked out everything was really bright uh, it was very luminous it was uh what do you say um there was a luminescence around everything and i went well that's interesting and neon almost like colors and i went well it sure is beautiful here in california i was overlooking the san francisco bay and, and could see it. i was 15 miles from it but i could see everything so clearly and i thought well okay um well i'm gonna just keep on walking and as i walked i looked up and um there was uh well there's two things that happened prior to that i i had read that there was a mountain lion um, out in the mountain, in this range of mountains. And at about two, 300 yards out, I saw something move and my whole focus went to it. And my focus from all the training I did is pretty intense. So my mind just went whoosh and I was focusing on, of course it would turn out to be a rabbit, right? So I thought, okay, but I, but it was important. I, I think everything happens for a reason. And I just looked at that rabbit and I thought of itself in nature. And I thought, okay, well, there's a rabbit. Good. Not a mountain lion. Now what do I do? And because my energy became so intense at that time, it was intensified by the experience of thinking it was a mountain lion. And I looked up and there was a either, I, I believe it was a hawk. Uh, it was a larger bird. And it um, circled above me and then went back towards the top of the mountain. And I thought, well, heck, that's a sign. I'll just go to the top of this mountain. So I continued to walk up. And um, at that point, um, I'm, I remember my sister calling out to me. And I said, um, you know, I'm not, just go home. I'm just going to be a while, I think. And I walked up contemplating the stress of my life. And also, what, what am I feeling right now? What is this that's occurring in, in the systems? And uh, eventually, it led me to the question that Ramana Maharshi has put forth when he was alive and in his books that said, 
to whom is this thought arisen? Who am I? And that that arose in my mind when I was thinking about things. And I, I all of a sudden had a flash of something happen once again. Something overtook me to the point that I was filled with tears coming out of my eyes. And it was very interesting, and I wasn't sad. But it was something releasing out of the system. It sort of, the energy pushed out. I can only think of held on tightly ideas of my livingness and my separation. And when I was down in the mountain just before, as I mentioned, doing the yoga, there was this sense of separation. There was me, the person doing yoga, and the environment. So I could really feel that separation as I had my whole life, you know, how do I fit in? I don't feel part of it. Sort of existential angst, if you want to call it that. But it, it, it was a theme that many of us have is there must be something wrong with me. I don't fit in. Something like that. But when that also occurred, the energy occurred then, I looked up and there was no longer a central me. There was no reference to a me, to a Rob Ryder. There was the isness, which is a made up word. I don't know what to call it. But there was just living occurring without separation. And it was very interesting at that moment because there was no longer a here and an over there. There just was everything everywhere. And um, I don't know what to call that experience. But then, as, as I described, there was a flash of, of um, um, history that went before me. And it included like an epic journey, everything that happened in the human cycle of living. And I observed that for some time. And then there was um, some more clearing of tears that I can recall now. And uh, lost, there was no more time for me. There was no more fear of anything at all. So all I felt was love. Essentially, that's all I felt. Uh, and I don't, you know, love is a funny word. It has a lot of context, but I don't mean conditional love. I don't mean I, I love you or we say that commonly. That's a great thing to say. But something else, a different quality of love. And there was no more that central figure. So there was just this loving energy with everything and all things. It was so interesting to me. Well, some time passed. I was not in time. I don't really lock into time too well anymore. Um, I'm aware of it as a relative experience with everybody. I try to make those appointments on time and things like that. But I'm not locked into it because I don't really feel there is a, <clears throat> we use the word be here now or this now experience, but try to capture it and it's already gone. So it can't be a now. So take time out of it. And I guess another way to refer to it is when you think a thought, it usually requires a thinker, duh, a thinker thinks a thought, but most thoughts we think are either about what we're going to do or what did happen. But no thoughts really uh, describe the now or this present moment or thisness because it's already passed. So it gave me insight immediately on languaging and labeling was such a separation from livingness. And prior to this, I had done a course called Avatar. It's a very beautiful course and went through all their different processes. And it was very revealing as to how does the mind use beliefs and how much of it interferes with true desire and, and living deliberately, as Harry Palmer uh, describes it. So I, I began to walk down that mountain. I was done. I walked down. All the hurts of the past of my uh, 
former family that was caught up in World War II that died, that I held a grudge against every evil person on the planet, that also dropped. I, I just made sense. There was nothing I could do, and anything I thought of was of my own thinking. So why think those thoughts? You know, it just didn't make sense to go there anymore. There was no more me to defend or protect or defy or assault anything. There was just this livingness occurring. It was very interesting to me. So as I came down the mountain, the first thing that happened is I heard some teenager boys um, talking and they were swearing and t as, as kids will do, you know? And I thought, oh, wow, I do that and I've done that. Oh, that's an identity. They're just speaking in a, in a certain way, packaged in a little identity. I went, oh, okay, so we use identities with labels and words and language to help us fit in, to be cool, to be accepted, to be, oh, so that insight started, it was all pouring in. Now everything I observed became insight. Of course, come down the mountain and there's the rabbit again. I'm like, wow. And I looked at it and I went, oh my God, you have less fear than we as humans have. And so what that meant to me was we have so much fear around dying, around living, around every aspect of our life that we try to control all the outcomes out there. And it was living its naturalness and instinctually had, has reaction to the environment because it needs it. And I went, well, that makes sense. And it showed me the nature of the ego itself. And we have, you know, the, the old brain, the limbic brain, and above it is where they consider where the ego may be operating. So this insight that came from just looking at this rabbit became a metaphor for living. And I then look at people's faces or things that happen at events, and I can see there's so much manipulation going on in living rather than just living a natural life, and that that fear is modifying our behavior. And as we'll get into some of the sessions I do that uh, I had learned from uh, actually taking a Sandler uh, sales class was that our need for approval was really up in every event we do. But I, I'll return to that in just a minute. So as I came further down, then I was up out of sight of any kind of residential. As I came down, there was a residential neighborhood and I looked at the houses and each house was square and I could imagine that each room because i've lived in a home is generally rectangular or square and compartmentalized towards this is a living room this is a bedroom this is a dining room this is a kitchen it was interesting to me because then it gave me insight into how we compartmentalize our life and so we put the fears in a certain compartment they rear up but then we put them away but we don't resolve them or subconsciousness or um, ideas of the past or hesitations in the moment. We compartmentalize it and we then separate out even from ourselves. And we don't have the uh, natural flow of interfacing with, with living anymore. We have this procrastination or stubbornness or, you know, some kind of um, resistance to going with the flow of life. And I'm not saying Having fear isn't part of the flow, sure, on some level. But we separate out and then lose our power. So that was very insightful. I came back down to the bottom. My sister had waited patiently, and I said, how long has it been? Because she looked in my eyes, and they were like, my pupils were like saucers, right? And she goes, roll, roll. And I said, um, how long? 
is it then? My voice was gone again. She goes, well, uh, somewhere between four and six hours, which only seemed like a half hour to me. And she said, you know, we, we, we waited for you and we went to the park with the kid and, you know, and did all that. So I became out of time in that time and it was a pretty revolutionary. I then went to uh, visit a friend and um, I had explained what had happened as best I could with any kind of words. And I said, I sensed that I could um, help someone physically just by touching them, no matter what the issue seemed to be. And I didn't explore all issues and all things, but I did have a sense of ability to touch someone and it would affect their field greatly and emanating energy coming out of everywhere. Um, from that also came a rising bliss energy that happens and is like a renewable battery every uh, every night for myself. As I disengage with my mental mind, this otherness quality would come up and the only times I've had it not is if I have a physical injury. Um, somehow it knows better whether to rise or not rise, but it's a very interesting thing that gives me this renewable source of energy, which I have somewhat ability to transmit out apparently. So and it affects somebody else's field in a very beautiful way. So that happened in 2000, December 2003. I, I wrote down the events as best I could on a plane ride home. And I ended up separating that um, within a few days of my being back because I I was staying, and I want to repeat that I love my ex very much, and I actually came back and reconciled, but at the time I left because all fears were gone. And my fear was leaving my children, you know, what would it be like, even though I saw them every day. and they, But it was still uh, stressful. Prior to that, when I returned, there was no stress. <laughs> You know, there was observation of feelings, but there was no stress with it because I had no fear whatsoever. Time went on and I was still working with clients. I was managing a financial thing. I was still doing entertainment and uh, just living my life without separation from it and having uh, insights all the time. And then it led me to another master. I was told uh, that there was this master that uh, seemed to affect the field and it was called the Ewan Method, and I realized it was Cam Ewan. And I had met Cam at a Kung Fu teachers conference in San Francisco years before. Well, he's a brilliant mind. Uh, you know, he studied physics, astrophysics. He had, um, he was on the, the David Carradine show Kung Fu. He actually, he actually choreographed all that for David Carradine. And he was on the show himself. And he realized that he could affect someone's energy through uh, his process. Well, he also realized that he could do it for the good and for the bad, so to speak. He could turn off energy, weakening the opponent, or make flip a switch, that's what I call it, and strengthen the opponent. So I went, I went and I met him, and my heart just filled with love when I saw him. And I went, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study his stuff. It must be a right-for-me thing. So I went and did the courses that he offered, but I instantly had an affinity for... Um, it was easy for me because the energy was already coming out of me. I just used his languaging and things like that. But now I've discerned that I can actually have a loving energy that comes out. I can have a healing energy that comes out of my hands of a variety of kinds, which I have no label for anymore. And then I can just sort of affect this field that flips the switch on or off. And that would be more like the Ewan method, meaning some of our beliefs weaken our system. 
and they can be old patterns or old ideas. But through muscle testing, which is uh, kinesiology, a way of testing the body, the body doesn't lie, thoughts either weaken you or strengthen you. And um, through this method, I realized I could help someone. It's almost like a computer, zero one, on or off. And they have it on as a negative experience in their body. I can flip it from just an intention of my mind, and it flips it back to neutral, and they become strong again. Through many years of coaching, I also find if I find the source of the problem, and when I flip the switch, in other words, pain that's in the body is a referral for something that's occurring. It could be injury, but it also could be a flip switch mentally that's causing a current to slow down or shut down or weaken. So in the process of working with many people, you begin to discern, is this an emotional feeling, a physical feeling, a mental idea? Is it an old pattern? You know, something like that. And so you either flip the switch and I get it. And I've done it where I flip the switch and I don't get it. And I'm like, well, what? What am I not getting? So then I learned to ask questions. What do you have on that? I think in our work together, I might have even asked you, uh, because it wasn't strengthened 100%. It was maybe 80% strong, but I could still sense a weakness. Well, then I didn't hit the source of it. So then I'll ask a client, you know, what do you have on that person? Or what do you have on that situation? What is it you're trying to get out of that? And so I realized that they could strengthen themselves by talking about things, which is the value of sometimes you can be valuable to talk out. Best friend, why do you feel better when you talk to best friend your problem? They don't even necessarily have a solution, but you just feel better about that. And I think that's really the model here. You just feel like you got it out of that compartment, you know, that place you hit it in your mind. And all of a sudden, you're clean, clear, and you you feel good. And so you go, you go on living with now a different framework or a different perception of, of livingness. So that's that's... That's been, I've spent time with uh, Maribai Devi. Um, uh, she's another, sh she's an interesting person who studied with an uh, Indian master. And uh, she will, she does her thing and touches you in the forehead. And it's odd, as strong and, and powerful as I have become through the different exercises, you lose body consciousness with it. I'm like, <laughs> I just, you fall back. And I mean, I couldn't sit up even. And I, I'm pretty adept, physically fit, and trained myself for all my life to be able to, you know, do anything I want. I couldn't, I couldn't get any, I couldn't get it there. But bliss energy running through me, I thought, well, it's not so bad. So her attendants say, just relax, it's all good, and all that. So I find that these masters have been so instrumental in helping me undo the doingness that Rob Ryder thought he should do his whole life, and that's anywhere from being a good boy, being a good person you know, achieving, all the things that happen in doingness versus beingness. Now, I don't know if you can really separate it more than an intention from the mental, physical, emotional mind that wants to, a spiritual mind that wants to accomplish something versus just being with what is as is. And so there's no static in living anymore. There's no one idea that satisfies living. It's almost like you're. I'm just living, <laughs> like anybody else. It's not any different. But there's this awareness that it's fluid. There's an awareness that life really is change. And you've heard, you know, that I think one of the phrases, the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. That means we bring to ourselves these labeling systems and we call a plant a plant, but that's just a word that comes out of our mind. 
And there's nothing wrong with it because in communication, we may want to direct ourselves to see a plant, but that doesn't give me the experience of the plant or of a person or of myself or of anything out there. The word water isn't certainly this liquid substance that rolls around if I you know, taste it or put it in my palm. There's a visceral experience here. Now, it's, it's giving me more insight into the experience of waterness than just the word water. And so many of us have cut ourselves off with the words, with the language. And, you know, you might say that, you know, the biblical story is that Adam got expelled from the garden because he took a bite of the apple of knowledge. And to me, that represents, and I'm not sure any other religion what it means, but to me, it's just a metaphor for when we have things in the way of something like the word, when we're not just communicating on a daily basis, hey, pass the ketchup, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the word ketchup isn't ketchup. Ketchup is, has its own ketchupness to it, and some call it catsup. You know, these are just labels, right? So we begin to discern how much we're bringing and laying on any kind of situation and not experiencing freedom or creativity or dynamic living. And so I found through a variety of processes in the coaching that uh, when someone undoes the doingness, they reside more in the beingness than when they use their faculty of speaking or performing or being in life. They have a more direct experience of it, whether it's praying, their religion, you know, whatever they want to align with, there's just more of them available. So in the coaching, as we uh, go along the coaching, we begin to learn that we may be splitting our attention and only giving partial attention. I don't know if you've ever been with a baby or a kid, but sometimes when you are talking as a parent, and I've observed not only my own kids, but other kids, they'll very gently take your chin and turn you towards them because what do they want? Your attention. So I'm not saying it's good, bad, right, or wrong. I'm just saying there's a livingness, and livingness requires attention. And when you have your full attention on something, I mean it's not split by psychological, uh, emotional, mental ideas, your livingness and beingness is fully aligned with that expression. And that's the value of the, that I find of the coaching, uh, is that you connect to whatever it is you really want to be at any given moment. And you become super aware, um, I think you might find that out, you, you become super aware of when your attention is not on something, which is great insight. And many people um, almost can't handle when you give them their full, your full attention. They're not used to it. They're almost used to split attention and, you know, because I don't, you don't want to activate their insecurities and look too much at them and, you know, things like that. So anyway, to each their own on that. But that's sort of the story that unfolded. And now uh, I try to help people in a way that helps them connect to their own natural way of living and whatever their processes are in this last year and a half. And I've done it prior to this, but I've coached through the studies that I did on a movement scale or the movement aspect of my studies. I studied a process with Tom Lubhart, who still teaches at Pomona. He was here in Michigan at the time I studied with him, but he taught what's called classical mime or corporeal mime. And that's the school of Etienne de Creux and uh, Paris. And I learned this foundational skill set that I find translates to every part of living. It helps me with spatial relationships. It helps me appreciate art, creativity, 
Uh, but most important, when I'm coaching people like bands that I've done so many and, and solo performers of any kind and public speakers or just anybody that wants to connect with anybody, that it, it helps with this presentation of the physical body. Because oftentimes I work with the best musicians. They're so good. you know. I, and I love that part. I get to be treated to the music. But I can help them with their presentation. And when they connect with this natural way of being plus a skill set in presentation, they become very beautiful in, in what I call a peak performance. Not just okay, not just pretty good, not just a good performance, which I've had many good performances, but a peak performance. And a peak performance, I, I like to think of it as the audience never wants you to leave. They are so in love with this moment because you've helped them transform out of their certain mindset. It could be sadness or things, challenges that happen to all of us in life. You know, the comings and the goings and broken hearts and losses and disease and deaths and all that. And the things that really affect us and, and the social things that are occurring like the shootings. I mean, people are deeply affected by all that. But our job as entertainers are, are to help people transform, if not just for a moment, for a lifetime, through a deep connection with people. And when we do that, we uplift, connect, and we join together in such a beautiful way that they don't want it to stop. Now it's not a cheap, you know, let play one more song. You know, you get that a lot. I see that. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then the bands come on, you want to hear one more? And, you know, it's just like a, you know, it's almost like, we train the audiences to act a certain way because we don't take responsibility as performers. And then the audience trains us because we, our need for approval is so great that we, we, don't wanna, we want them to like us. And that's just not the way to be in the world at any time. Having to look for approval modifies our behavior, and then we begin to try to modify their behavior. And once again, we're in this pretentious way of living not being with each other, but doing this, and then I'll do that, and I do this, and you do that, and, and it becomes mixed up. And in a peak performance, they, they rush to their feet in a standing ovation, or at least a heartfelt, you can feel it. And that's, that's what I hope that someone will walk away with that, at least capacity and ability by the first part of the coaching that I do is to help them undo some of the, these things that we do and understand Look, we've, we've all gone through our life, and, you know, it's challenging. And it's not always clear. We don't know why. And just as I described as a child, it was very confusing for me. I still don't understand so much. I mean, I can understand why people do, because they haven't achieved their highest potential. So they dummy down education and through other processes. They dummy down their livingness with concepts and soundbite theories like, you know, this is good for me because I read it or I heard it. And that could be anywhere from, you know, a political party to religion to any, any way. And I'm not opposed to any of that. I'm just saying sometimes we don't ask ourselves, why is this particularly good for me? We just sort of follow and, and want to belong again. And what that does is create a momentum of, of, of disconnection to living and never questioning what needs to be questioned, not only outward authority, not that we are rising against it, but just why. Because if you don't rise up against it at some point, then you are the problem that's causing the suffering in the world too. So more importantly is to question your own inner authority. Who, who am I? Who's talking in my head? 
Because as you begin to explore, and this may be true for some and may not be true, I can't know what's true for anybody else, but you may find that that self-image that we have built up so much in response to everything that comes in, every response we make back to someone, isn't exactly real. Who is that in my mind? Who is speaking? Because it only speaks in a past pattern. It doesn't know how to refer to this new moment. It can only do it in context of an idea of the past, an idea of the future. So to me, it's a, it's a little bit of a um, misguided system. It does the best it can, but it's not you. And that begs to inquire then, who am I? If I'm not all the words that I label everything, if I'm not the expression that I do, because many people confuse themselves with their expression, I am a father, I am a brother, I am a uh, you know, financial guy, I'm a author, I am all that. We confuse ourselves with the I am living energy to the expression. You can't be the expression, but you can express it, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's great. I love it. It's fun, right? But if we confuse the two, then it leads to suffering. And any kind of, any I find, and everybody can find for themselves, that when you are caught up in the momentum of the mind, it becomes insensitive. It desensitizes itself, and it's no longer available for the real moment or this real livingness, and it's going on through concepts about the livingness, and it's one step removed. And as David Hawkins, a uh, great, brilliant guy, an amazing guy, uh, I got to spend some time with him, would say the, the brain thinking mind is one one hundred thousandth of a second behind the actuality. And you can test it out. You look at something, you give it a name, but you looked at it it was already registered in the mind. And so um, Sailor Bob Adams wrote, wrote a great book, uh, What's Wrong With Right Now? Unless You Think About It. And again, introduces the concept that thought, um, why it can be clarifying in communication. I don't want to discount it. I use it. We're using it right now. But in livingness, it interferes and separates and keeps us one one hundred thousandth of a second away from real living. And many people regret later on on their deathbed that they never really lived their life. And so I'm not saying what people should or shouldn't do, but it's just good to question yourself and question that inner authority and just make sure it's leading you to something rather than just accepting it. Because when we accept it within our own mind, that means we also accept this outward authority, which is can be brutality in a fascist kind of way. And there's many examples of fascism and many... In, in many countries where people become insensitive to other people, and where diversity, exclusion happens instead of inclusion. And, um, and so we create our own problems, but it's not the macro problem in terms of society to me is just a reflection of this inner thing that I'm doing to myself. So I'm not asking anybody to do anything at all. Uh, I, for myself, just inquire, where did this thought come from? What did it want when it threw that thought up? Because we operate in this associative memory. That's what the thinking mind does. It's all association. And in response to unresolved uh, fears and insecurities that arise. And to me, it becomes uh, a diminished way to live. It's surface thoughts, which are fun. I, I mean, I, I can go there. I love jokes. I love surface thoughts. But it doesn't connect you to the real joy of living. And, and I, I don't want to sound woo-woo or the miracle of it. But when you have a personal shift, life becomes very vibrant. And 
you're entertained by just the livingness of the energy. And yeah, you still go out and accomplish things, but it's done with sensitivity and it's done with an open heart accepting things as if you invited them to happen, even when they're challenging. And that is the hardest thing is, you know, creating against ourselves. In other words, uh, you know, I want to go to the store, but I don't want to get in the cold car. So I begin to create against myself. And that's just a surface one. But there's many, many that go much deeper in terms of my relationships and things like that, uh, that keep me separate from really honing in with somebody and being with them fully. And you know, you get one chance to do this kind of living. I don't know about, I'm not adept in reincarnation or, you know, what happens after dying. I don't remember anything from before, so I don't know about any kind of living before. But yeah, if that that's fine, I would say, why not really live now? And we'll see what happens later on, but why not really live your life? And to me, that becomes a an extraordinary life and loving life and very different than what I started with. And it's um, beautiful to experience those things. And, and life offers us such a buffet, you know, and it's with challenges too. You know, there's lots of things that happen, have a physical body. It, 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 it's like genetic roulette. There's a certain amount of it I can't control. It's propensity to whatever it's going to be based on, um, the past genetics, but also on what I add to it. And I've been a little rough and tumble on this body. And so kind of fun, but still manages to get around. It's good. Could you tell us about the iron body? Oh, sure. Well, part of started studying with Master Lee is that there was this trilogy. And uh, um, and it's kind of a funny story. So I'll, I'll tell you the beginnings of it. So here's this guy and I get called up. What, what, what happened? And let me just back up. There was a, a restaurant owner here, a Chinese restaurant owner, loved him, Alex and Alice Lin, Chinatown, was here for years and years. And he knew I did Kung Fu, I'd come back and visit. And then uh, in 1983, when I came back here, um, I was doing shows out in Santa Barbara, and it's kind of an interesting story. My dad came to visit me. Um, I was about 30 pounds lighter, and I'm not exactly chubby even now, but I was super skinny then, and my dad came and... And I was very popular as a movement artist here. And when I went back to Santa Barbara, there's really no industry. It's tourism, but there's no not even corporations there. It's just a you know like Camp Santa Barbara. It's kind of a fun place to be. So my dad came to visit me, and I was uh, I was hire, I was living on property to um, I don't want to say bodyguard, but that was the guys that I was um, brought up there was to help be a protector. Now I will tell you, there was never a time I ever had to do that. They had two giant German shepherds. They did just mighty fine on their own. But anyways, because I had these skill sets, they, my friend who had uh, started me in the Kung Fu path thought it'd be good for both of us to be there. And so I brought my dad up because it was quite a paradise. It overlooked the ocean and overlooked the mountain range and overlooked Santa Barbara. It was like beautiful, right? So my dad looks and he looks at me, he goes, well, you could certainly starve in paradise because I was skinnier than a rail. <laughs> and it, I was eating spaghetti with lemon juice on it. I mean, I couldn't afford anything anymore. And here I was working quite regularly in, in Grand Rapids in Michigan. So I ended up coming back and I get this call after I went to Chinatown and it was, you could come to my father's house, you know, this strong accent. I'm like, okay. I, I could tell it was Chinese. I went, just give me an address. So I show up there and there's this guy and he, you know, he, I start this class with him in his living room and I'm like, what is all this? Because it was so intense. And then he 
dropped me to the ground faster than I've ever been dropped. And I went, what was that? I mean, I didn't even know what I was getting into. So I said, we need a bigger room. And so I decided I would stay here. I was hired by uh, Amway Corporation and I played Charlie Chaplin for some, uh, you know, films. And uh, until the Chaplin Society thought it was a little bit too good and they wanted royalty. So that ended and I did other kind of characters for him. It was great. I got hired to uh, perform at the Marriott at the bar called Charades. So they thought a mime would be good for that. And I met my ex-to-be uh, wife, and which is an interesting story because when I was studying at Kung Fu in California before coming to Master Lee, the last thing I, we did in class was we had to fight six people at once. So it was me against six people, and I had to be blindfolded. So a lot of sensitivity happens. You begin to listen a lot better and have sensitivity to every feel that's going on. And the interesting story is when I came back here, uh, after my dad's comment, I came back here, I had done shows down at the festival and um, I uh, walked into a bar and I felt someone grabbing towards me in, behind, in my behind area and I reached back and grabbed it and it was my soon-to-be wife. I said, can I help you? And she goes, so embarrassed, oh my God, her sisters and friends were pinching guys' butts and pretending like it wasn't them. They go, nobody's ever caught us. So anyway, good good kung fu training, right? So anyway, I got a studio, brought Master Lee out, and I thought it'd be a really good idea to challenge him to a fight. And he said to me, well, I'll use one finger, and you can do anything you want. I thought, heck yeah, I'm going for it. So I immediately charged, went in there, and in a nanosecond, I was on the ground writhing in the worst bone-crushing pain I'd ever had in my arm. I mean, I was on the ground, bone-crushing pain. I mean, what? One finger? How can that happen? And I looked down, and I also had a welt. I'm like, oh, my God, who is this guy? Well, later I find out he's grandmaster in the world and in the praying mantis style and awed and respected by all. He had done demonstrations, and he had traveled to escape communism to go to Vietnam. He met Chukai, his teacher, and he became the, you know, the guy. And Chukai would, people typically would challenge a school to see if they could fight. And Chukai would go, Yan, his name was Yan Ma Lee. And they'd hold up one finger and that's all Master Lee could do. He was pretty adept because he had this iron body, iron, iron palm and steel head. And so I just dedicated myself. And then he uh, created a class for myself and some of my classmates at that time and for years i would go and um, the process is a hard process you have to be very dedicated and you do get hit but never to the point of hurting but the body reacts in such a way and different areas react in different ways the arms will calcify create calcium and his arms like wide and and mine at the time you know it was a long time ago were you know, extra chunky, and, and the body will deposit calcium in those spots. And then the rest of the body causes the fascia to tighten more. And so when you tighten more, it creates this hard, not permeable, but very hard surface. And the idea is that if something hits that, in the in the movies you'd see from, you know, Hong Kong and all that, uh, you would see arrows and things bounce off. You always thought that was unreal. Well, it's really real. Things will bounce off you when you have this iron body. So anyway, that I did that and developed this sheath. And if anything hit me, it would either crumble somebody's wrist 
would crumble if they hit the body, or it would bounce in such a way that with as much force as they would have, their force would continue and curve their hand off of me and the, thus turn their body and make them vulnerable for an incoming. And so it was just part of the iron body was part of this mantis. And if you've ever seen a praying mantis, they have a hard body and they have this grabbing and grappling technique and they're pretty vicious. So, and there's a lot of techniques involved with that. So I just went full in and did the iron body and uh, the qigong and the tai chi. Yeah, so that's how that happened. Well, bringing it back around to the coaching for yes. the listeners out there that are out there beyond Michigan, beyond the United States, if they are interested in working with you or yes, being involved in a coaching session, do you? What do you offer? What are some of the types of? Sure, I do like live, but it's not always possible. So I can do Skype kind of coaching. I also can by the phone because I can sense things that when somebody says something. It's not just what someone says, and, and certainly being a mime has helped me train this idea of my visuals. I can So if I'm using Skype, I can see someone, and I can see all the inflections and also see what they're not saying and see what their body's telling me because it speaks so loudly, the, the nonverbal communication. But even coaching on the phone can happen. And it just depends what they want to accomplish. I can direct all exercises, especially if I see visually, Nearly everything I do in a coaching session, I would prefer a visual as a Skype. But I also offer follow-up in the phone, because now that I know someone, I can really feel, sense a lot of things. Um, I have done energetic corrections in the phone. I like muscle testing just to make sure. And it's just my own, because I can sense it if it happens. But I've just gotten used to using that muscle testing technique. Um, but I can pretty much sense it just by what, what happens, and certainly by the feedback I get. You can tell if someone sort of brightens up and gets clear, all of a sudden their whole demeanor changes. So anywhere from Skype to phone to live, I can also travel, but then the expenses get a little bit more because the, the expenses of traveling and time uh, get added into it. And what can people expect um, when working with you? Or is it it's going to be different for each person? So our <laughs> session was six hours and it was yeah. there was so much information packed into that yeah that i'm still processing it all and yeah i'm i know it's going to be carried with me the rest of my life i'm yeah i know that it's i just could feel the transformations that yes. through the exercises that yes and i would recommend to everybody out there that's listening check out rob's book because he's got a ton of exercises each chapter is built with several exercises at the end of it to get you Get your mind going and there's a spot for reflection so that mm -hmm. you can write inside of it and it's a great yes. precursor to your courses yes there's a lot of information packed into that so what can people ex expect in terms of pricing and where's that yeah that that'll be individually uh done and the website does reflect some of it and money's not my motive my motive would say is a is that we need to all come together and have a transformation personally so that we can become a much more loving society mm -hmm. and and all that um, but the price you know the typical length in person has been four hours and for you we went longer because i tr wanted everything you know t so you could have a basis even for this interview but also because you don't live here give you as much as i could give you in this one go but the website will contain 
at some point will contain some of the exercises that I do that people will even be able to download. I want that available if it's just for movement. Maybe somebody doesn't want me to help them in their mind. They're just fine, but they want to know how to present better. So I can modify what I do to whatever the demand is. Often and prior to all this, that's what I did. I don't care what kind of presentation someone did. Uh, I didn't always run them through exercises. I would just, I would just coach them into, you know, you're you're looking down, you're looking up, you're umming a lot, you're you know, you're distracting the audience. You know, the twelve major nerves of your eyes are there for survival, and your audience is you know pretty oriented to visuals, and so they are watching everything that's occurring. So it get it helps to get coached uh, by a good eye, uh, mine or somebody else's, and help resolve. Sometimes, though, I have found that I can correct a pattern on the outside, but unless they do the work on the inside, some of the ticks that happen in involuntary movements have a lot to do with resisted behaviors on the inside. We're resisting experiencing something. And so when I invite them to experience those things, magically the ticks stop. Imagine that, because they're not the problem. They just show up as a symptom. So I don't know if I answered it, but usually, you know, someone will t call me, talk to me, and and we'll talk about their circumstances. There's many performers, and I don't just limit to performers, but there's many performers that are scared to death when they walk on stage. And <clears throat> they're just resisting something within themselves because they're super talented. And I say, don't let fear stop you from this passion you have. Let's just work out the fear because the rest of it will take care of itself. And so uh, pricing is uh, depends on how we do it, how many hours, and, and all that. So for people listening, this really applies to anybody. Yes. It, it, regardless of if you're public speaking, you're a musician, you're having a one-on-one -on -one interview with somebody else, you have to sales, yes. really anything. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've been in the corporate world in sales and training people. And I come in with this kind of universal knowledge so that even in sales, you can just connect with someone. Otherwise, you're too caught up in your own behavior. And it's odd, but when we become self-conscious or insecure, that becomes selfish behavior. In other words, our attention turns inward. We're no longer out there. We're concerned with, how, do they like me and all that. So I have coached many, many people that just want to have a more fulfilled life. They just want to enjoy their life more. And traditional therapy can be very useful, uh, especially in a crisis situation. It can be very useful because choosing to not live is not, you know, it's not so great in my opinion. Whereas just dropping some concept, all of a sudden that person, as emotional as they were to lead them to a pretty dark place, that same emotion can lead them to a pretty high place if they undo, unravel, you know, what's really bothering them. Most people haven't had a chance to sit with somebody that's will unconditionally love them, right? And there's a lot of love that happens in that process together. And just freedom to just be yourself. So much people hold on to so much and they think that you have to be the way you were. And now all of a sudden you've got to be this for that person and something else for somebody else. It's confusing rather than just, I want to say being yourself but really just being present, a loving being, because that's our natural way of being. So everything else is this buildup, and when you build up too much, you don't know how to be with everybody, 
and you, it begins to distract you. And then all of a sudden, who are you when you're presenting? Which one are you going to be? So to me, we look at what is this natural way of being? It becomes invited in its own course of time when we work together by undoing all the identifications that we were thinking of as me. And uh, I know this maybe I don't know if these words are hitting home for anybody, but you're free always. And if you're not feeling that, then you probably have some ideas in the mind that are limiting you. And those are those ideas need to come undone. And then if you want them again, you go ahead and use them because, you know, the patterns of the mind can, you know, you can reestablish them at, at any time. But also you can reestablish a sensitivity. And as that occurs, you can uh, have a different way of living and interfacing. And just to be more available to your partner or more available to your students or more available to your clients or more available to your parish, more available to living more available when you're in nature to really be with nature and in all in its you know awesomeness because nature isn't got a psychological problem it doesn't have an emotional problem it's just being as it is and so i think one of the chapters is be with what is as is and that includes yourself just let yourself be even if you're expressing not such great aspects of yourself you you you'll you'll change you'll correct it or you'll get feedback about it but to berate ourselves about these things is just adding another problem. And my first teacher, as I mentioned, Krishnamurti, had said, don't make a psychological problem out of a problem. So as much as I can, I try to handle what comes up effectively, efficiently, once, and hopefully I get it. And if not, I do, I do it again. And if I find myself where I'm identifying in a, you know, not such a great behavior, you know, I know I'm doing that. And I correct it, but I also ask myself, what is it I was trying to get? The ego. What did you want? What did it want? Because there's not really a me in, or in any of us. There's this idea of a me. And as we begin to break down that concept of a me, we then are able to adopt many perspectives of living. And those perspectives give us flexibility in living. And with flexibility, you can meet many challenges, as I mentioned before, with maybe a new way of being with it. And what I think arises out of that sensitivity is a thing called love, and it's not conditional love. It's just the, the allowance for things to be as they are, and I am too. The shift from me to we. Yes. I love that. Yeah. That's and one of your later chapters. It is one of my later chapters because it was a talk I had given, and I found that when we ignite our passion, personal, whatever that passion is, that it also ignites somebody else's passion, to whatever theirs is. It doesn't have to be what mine is. So I feel that when we collaborate with each other in a very honest sense, whether it's personally honest about what's really bothered me or being honest with someone else for their behaviors or, or my behaviors, that real magic happens. We have better relationships and things move better uh, for, for everybody concerned. And there's this allowance to just be and allow mistakes to happen and allow the failures to be learning experiences rather than it was about a me and I'm not good enough and all that stuff that I've certainly done in my life. And uh, with that new kind of pattern, there's sort of a magic to living in a way that's, you know, it's cool. <laughs> you know, I don't know. 
you know, it's just, and it's not without challenges. You know, I, I, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm not anything special. I'm not, I, I have an awareness that's occurred. That's fantastic. I also have a mind that, uh, has, you know, challenges that, you know, because I work with people with challenges and, you know, I, I love them and I want them to be healthy, but I'm not in control of that. I'm just a conduit for some possibilities for someone. And life is the real teacher. Your work is just so special and hearing your story because you're teaching people how to transform other people. It's this ripple effect of if you can teach a performer to transform their audience, then you're you're transforming so many more lives and each person that's transformed can help other people transform. And so I just, I really encourage everybody, if you, if you don't already have the book, get your hands on this book. Life is not what you think. Permission to go out of your mind. Rob has just deconstructed all of these lessons that he's learned throughout his past and put them in a really clear format that is easy to read, easy to absorb, and I just couldn't more, more highly recommend it. So, and for people that don't currently have it, is there an exercise that you would recommend a simple exercise for people that are listening that they could do right now? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, there's so many of them, right? I would say that when you, I think a couple of things, one, we try to put so much on something and, and I have learned that when I learn to appreciate things, um, I'm not doing anything on it. I'm not doing anything in spite of it or because of it. I'm just looking at it and appreciating its own expression, whether I agree with it or not, in some part of my mind. And to me, that's a tolerance for all things to have happen. It's a big shift. So I just recommend, you know, you know, the first thing that happens, uh, for instance, we're sitting where there's an aloe vera plant. So that's a name, right? So that's the name. But as I observe it more, I go, okay, well, I'm going to let that name go. What else is there? And I'm going to invite myself to observe and see what else is there. Well, there's spikes along the side. The size of everything's different. And there's imperfections on it. And there's, there's just things that I just wouldn't notice about it had I just left it as a label aloe vera plant. And I'm not saying it's gonna it's a mind-altering uh, experience, but it can be with a person that comes in your life, perhaps your partner, perhaps your child, perhaps uh, you know a, an unconditional loving being like a dog or or a cat that comes in, and you observe its own nature rather than posing what you think it should or shouldn't be. And as that happens, including in business, there's just a deeper connection. So to me, that's one of the Great things is just to appreciate things no matter what if it pushes us. So while I was writhing in pain on the ground, as my teacher had touched me with that one finger, um, he had also said, you know, you're just, he's, oh, one thing, you're too slow. And then he came to speak and he said, you know, one good move is better than 10,000 bad moves. And so the work that I do is to help someone synthesize to the art of being and the art of presence as one good move every moment along the way versus you know making 10,000 more bad moves and wondering and becoming a victim and wondering why you know why my life is doing this to me you know it's just a shift in consciousness and so my invitation is just 
allow things to be there a little bit more. And if you have to make changes, there's someone there that can help you make changes. It could be your friend. It could be not a friend. It could be a stranger. But allow someone to help you. Just help you make those shifts because when you give yourself this tolerance, a more loving you shows up. And as a more loving you shows up, all your expressions become much more honest, flowing, easier, and real. I spoke about it in episode four about being in the flow. And could you speak to what it means to be in the zone or be in the flow? Sure. So what I call a peak performance and a deep connection with whether an audience or a partner or the things that we talked about is that sense of you is now gone, that that um, we tend to monitor ourselves. And then measurement and comparison comes up very quickly. And then the need for approval comes up where I want you to like me. And before you know it, I'm barely doing the thing that I'm really adept at, and I'm doing so much what I would call selfish, meaning towards myself behavior. We note that when someone's in the zone, there is no reflection on themselves. They're becoming that pure action. So we want to note in life when am I thinking about something, which is not being in the zone, it's being absorbed in thinking, not good, bad, right, or wrong, and when am I in that pure action? And so there's been many times people in different circumstances where they are just in that full action. They're just being what it is they're doing, right? And then all of a sudden you ask, well, how do you fall out of the zone? The fastest way is to say, wow, I'm in the zone, because you know you're not. You, know, you just pull yourself out. So to me, it gives us insight and, and not, a, not necessarily a model for what to uh, strive for because that's just another momentum of the mind which can lead to insensitivity. But just notice that you can put your attention back onto the expression and it will take you. And as it takes you, you are in that zone. Also, intelligence tells us that it can also operate into, wow, I need to sit back from the microphone or move closer or or the audience is looking at something and I'm informed that there's, you know, a bird flying in the auditorium, you know, I want to be part of that too. I'm like, wow, I'll look up too with that. So I'm not without, you know, being in the zone is you can't prescribe it, you can't make it happen. But the less time that's, re that's done in self-monitoring, the more attention gets you to carry into your art form. And I think that describes being in the zone or going with the flow. But also going with the flow is that you fall out of the flow and you go with that. And in a way you live a life more connected to livingness because um, things happen in life and we cannot control life. We think that if we control outcomes that we're going to be insulated from something from feeling our feelings, from feeling bad. And it's just not the case because life, what you resist will persist. What is not integrated wants to come up and be integrated. Early childhood things like uh, being spanked or hit or bullied or things like that are create deep scars in us. And unless we resolve and have this sense of, I don't wanna say forgiveness, but this allowance that it just happened, it was out of my control, and then furthermore, it's not what happened, it's how I am with what happened. To me, that gives great insight, and then I'm in, I'm in 
control, so to speak, or command of the experience I'm having because I realize it's my ideas about something that's influencing me, not what happened to me anymore. It's never what happened. I'm not condoning violent behavior of any kind. It's not what happened, though. It's how I feel about what happened. And that is my own programming. So while I was very young and like everybody else, things came in, you know, good penmanship and all the different things that were demanded us in school and other areas of our lives. Uh, it's how I felt about it or how I was with it or furthermore, how I believed about it that influences my reactions even now. And that's my own choosing. It may seem like I was a victim then and maybe I was in the moment a victim of their, you know, dripping on me what, you know, what I should be like, all that. But it's my doing now, and I'm responsible for my life. And even, you know, there's some tough things that happen, uh, brutality, violence, rape, um, sexual abuse, verbal abuse. There's a lot of things that happen to us, and it gets stored in the body, and it's PTSD. It's very challenging war. Uh, violence, not just in a war front, but in a home front. PTSD can occur. Um, but it's our job to help ourselves not just be a victim of it, but unravel how I believe about it. And there's different ways to do it. And again, I don't condone uh, any of the violent behaviors, but it's our responsibility to be with where we are now because we're the ones that, in a sense, recreate our ideas about it. And the body, the mind, and I also would then break down emotional, mental, and spiritual bodies, they're not separate. There's just this oneness that's happening. And because of soundbite theory and theories about how to eat and gluten, not gluten and fat-free and, you know, all these things that are out there and then mental things, be a good person and, you know, all these prescribed ways of being, they tend to separate us because I'm, I'm, I'm in conflict now because I'm not feeling like a good person. I'm not feeling good about myself. So all of a sudden, I'm, now it's going to activate, I'm not worthy, I'm bad or whatever it gets activated. And those are all this uh, momentum of the mind through associative memory, which wears us out. And it and it physically causes dis-ease, not at ease with ourselves, which create physical problems along the way. So the, the lesson that I, I work with, even myself, is so what's really going on? Can I, can I be honest? So that time I played a victim, what did I want? Oh, I wanted someone to feel sorry for me, or I wanted to defend why I'm irresponsible or why I do drugs or why I do that. And not, I don't care what anybody does in their life. That's that's theirs. But if you want to unravel it, no sense in looking back at an old something that happened because it's not happening anymore. Your idea of it's happening. Who creates your ideas? You do. And if you look at it further, you'll just see that, that it's really just a pattern coming up in you because the idea of a you is very tricky. I have not found a me. I can't find a central me. The speaker is not a me. It's a mechanical process and, and thought form that I have. And it uses a voice that sounds like me, and I've used it a lot. But that's not me any more than just my right hand is me. Because if you have an amputation, you know, you're still here. So who am I becomes a great question. I thought Ramana Maharshi did it best. To whom has this thought arisen? Who am I? And then we'll begin to see that sometimes our ideas of ourselves are really what? Ideas of ourself. No different than the aloe vera plant. And freedom comes from being honest about what I'm constructing and perhaps a way to deconstruct it. 
And one of the ways, the one exercise I think is great is just appreciating or allowing something to, to arise with conscious awareness of it. And if I want to change that, maybe I can change that. Maybe I can think more kindly or maybe forgive. It's tricky, slippery slopes when we come to forgiveness. But maybe there's this idea that I can let go of a certain way of thinking about something and see it from a different perspective. Maybe I hover above an event that happened in the past and see what led to it. What part did I play in creating the trauma? Maybe I needed to, you know, um, maybe not open my mouth, you know, something like that. Or maybe not, you know, jump out of that plane. Maybe that wasn't such a great idea, you know, something, something that occurs for us. But ultimately, it becomes how I believe about something, not what happens anymore. And I, I, my mom, I remember saying to me, because I'd say, Mom, I want blah, blah, blah. She goes, it's not what you have, Robert. It's what you do with what you have. And it was interesting to me. And I, I worked so hard with my body. Same thing. It's not what your body is. It's what you do with your body. And so I just used that as a, a pretty good lesson. She didn't have much, uh, you know, unkind words for anybody. She may have been with us, you know, teaching us the way or something like that. But um, not for anybody else. So it, you learn to slow it down, observe, see what you can extrapolate without laying too much more on it because everybody's laying enough on themselves. They don't need one more person laying one more thing out on them. So I believe in going inside and not creating a dependency. I don't want anybody dependent on me. If, if any ideas that, that have come through me that have been helpful, then I really appreciate someone walking away with that and then integrating that into their life and let life teach them too. Because when you become more sensitive, you become available for the lessons of life. So I don't want any kind of dependency at all. I, I Sometimes traditional methods of exchanging with people creates a dependency on addictive patterns, whether it be with a person, a therapist, a, you know, any kind of reoccurring pattern and, and there's nothing wrong. I'm not calling anything good, bad, right, or wrong. But it doesn't necessarily lead to your own insight. And it could. Maybe inebriation leads to an insight. I don't know. But I find that the dependency is just another rabbit hole to go down in which there is a me and a you instead of this unified experience of us, we, or thisness of living, which includes all things. And for those listening who are interested in checking out a yoga nidra, you have actually created one of your own that is available on your website. Is that correct? Yes, so. I yeah, that's great. I, I I created a yoga nidra after doing the studies with uh, Amrit Desai and uh, spending many years doing it myself. And you know, you can go onto YouTube. There are yoga nidras out there, some more effective than others, and everybody can decide for themselves. Uh, Oddly enough, I still like my own, and, and it's not like I like my own voice, but I don't, I'm not opposed to it, but it contains components that not every one of them have. I've tried to throw in every uh, aspect of yoga. There is a science behind this, and I'm not going to describe it because then you're going to lay down and, and try to figure out what, is it, what it is and when it is, but, it, but I've tried to use every component that I've learned and add it into that yoga nidra. And... So it, it really helps not only rest, but integrate your life. I just don't talk too much about it because then the mind wants to, you know, search for which word was the one that did it or something like that. So the Yoga Nidra is available on the Coach Presence page as well as the book link. 
the next book that is going to come out this year is called performance and that'll be available soon and uh that's really for people that are on stage and help them dis discover a different way to be on stage than perhaps their past patterns. And then there's also another one in the works. It's called um, Never Age a Day. And that one really takes the whole system that I've lived my life with and uh, works with you know different aspects of living that I think can be helpful guidelines to achieve a more vibrant life not wear yourself out so depending on when you're listening to this these books may already be out so they'll check out the links in the description they'll all be there yes um all the links to all of rob's work and his social media if you want to get in contact with him so thank you rob really it's it's an honor to be with you thank you thank you so much i really appreciate you Saul, and um for all you out there just love your life I just want to give a really big thanks to Rob one more time. He truly is an amazing teacher and mentor who has dedicated his life to helping others. If you or anyone you know of is interested in learning more about Rob and the work that he is doing, check out his webpage at coachpresence.com. He is also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash coachpresence. Rob works with bands, musicians, performance artists, public speakers, creative artists, actors, salespeople, and anyone seeking to build their confidence. His work is for anyone who presents in front of people, performers who want total command, people who want to be free and play and work in harmony. Thank you for listening to the Solgood Media Podcast. If you want to support the work that we're doing here, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Media. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D-M-E-D-I-A. Thanks again for listening. Have a Saul Good week. Peace.